series on the gleanings from the book of Genesis by uh, studying this morning uh, the first 15 verses in Genesis chapter 35. So if you would turn to Genesis chapter 35, we will do our scripture reading there. Beginning in verse 1, which reads, Then God said to Jacob, Arise and go up to Bethel and dwell there, and make an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau your brother. And Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, purify yourselves and change your garments. And then let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way which I have gone. And so they gave Jacob all of the foreign gods that were in their hands and the earrings that were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree, which was by Shechem. And they journeyed, and the terror of, the, of God was upon the cities that were all around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And so Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and the, all the people who were with him. And he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel, because there God appeared to him when he fled from the face of his brother. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried below Bethel under the terebinth tree. And so the name of it uh, was called Elan uh, Bakuth. And then God appeared to Jacob again uh, when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob, and uh, your name shall not be called uh, Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. And so he called his name Israel. And also God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. And the land which I gave Abraham and Isaac, I give to you. And to your descendants after you, I give this land. And then God went up from him uh, in the place where he talked with him. And so Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had talked with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. And Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke with him, Bethel. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for the privilege of being able to worship you in song the way that you have given us. And Christianity is a singing religion because there is so much within our hearts that we want to say to you, to sing uh, to you, to express our thanksgiving, to give you worship and honor and glory from our hearts. And Father, we thank you for who you are, and we thank you for the incredible, uh, how incredibly good and how incredibly gracious you are, even as we have sung Jesus, we thank you for being our Savior, and we thank you and love you this morning. And Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would open this passage up to us, that you would make it a friend to us, and something that is impactful in our lives for all of the days that remain in our pilgrimage. We pray that you would speak into the present tense of uh, any circumstance within our lives to which this passage applies in a powerful way, in a hopeful way. And we pray for that work of your Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 35 begins with the word then. And that word provides us with the context to the entirety of uh, chapter 35. And that single word then is so important to the chapter that I think it can be safely said that no one will ever understand chapter 35 without understanding what the Holy Spirit is communicating through that word then. Then is the single word encapsulation uh, 
of the chapters that have preceded chapter 35, and that is chapters 33 and 34. Last time we were together in chapter 32, we studied Jacob's wrestling with God and his being renamed Israel, governed by God as a result of that. And the following day, as is recorded in chapter 33, limping, Jacob went forth to meet his older brother Esau, not knowing what the intent of Esau and his 400 men uh, were toward him, whether they were intent upon killing him, killing his entire family, all of his servants, his flocks, and, and his herds. And the encounter that, uh, with Esau that he had feared for 20 years ended up being very, very cordial. In fact, more than cordial, it ended up being very, very warm. Upon seeing Jacob, we're told in chapter 33, verse 4, Esau ran uh, to meet him, embraced him, kissed him, and then together we're told that they wept in one another's arms, and this beautiful reconciliation uh, occurred between these brothers. But then after that, everything went south for Jacob, as chapter 34 records. While living in, in the area of a city by the name of Shechem, in the land of Canaan, where Jacob had settled and had lived in for somewhere between seven and ten years, uh, his daughter Dinah went out, as we're told in that chapter, to see the daughters of the land. She was young, probably just 14 or 15 years old. She has no evil intent. She's merely curious about the city of Shechem, their ways, their lifestyle. And she's intent upon learning something about that by observing uh, the women who live there. She's completely ignorant about the danger that she was putting herself uh, in. And as she explores there, she caught the eye of the king's son who proceeded then to violate her, to rape her. And his name was Shechem. And he was attracted to her, and he asked his father, following the violation, uh, to approach her family in order to arrange a marriage between them. And Jacob was then made aware of the rape, uh, presumably by Dinah. And Dinah's uh, brothers, Jacob's sons, they were out in the field at the time. They were tending the livestock. And Jacob intended to hold his peace concerning this until they returned from uh, their responsibilities that day when he could inform them. In the meantime, Shechem's father, by the name of Hamar, uh, he came out to Jacob's encampment in order to speak to Jacob about arranging an a marriage between Dinah and Shechem. And of course, in that uh, ancient Middle Eastern world, it was the parents who arranged the marriages. And Dinah's brothers then returned from the field later. They were informed of the rape of their sister, and their reaction, we're told, was grief and great anger. And, uh, and the idea of being grieved means they were pained with anger uh, and angry uh, to the level of pain over the fact that uh, their sister had been treated like a harlot, as they put it, uh, late in the chapter in verse 31. But additionally, this violation of Dinah was a violation of the entire family. And uh, in sinning against uh, their sister, he had sinned against the entire family as they were her guardians. This was a, a, a disgraceful act against not only Dinah, but, but the family. And Hamor, he then proposed uh, to Jacob further that the marriage of Shechem and Dinah uh, and uh, uh, Shechem himself being present uh, at this proposal, this negotiation that is going on, uh, he personally asked uh, Jacob for Dinah's hand in marriage and offering to pay whatever dowry would be required in order for it to occur. Hamor the father then proposed that Jacob and his family intermarry with the men and the women of Shechem and essentially that all of them would become one big, happy, prosperous family uh, together. 
And then the uh, sons of Jacob, uh, as they uh, followed here now on the he- hard on the heels of, of Dinah's rape, as the conversation is going on deceitfully, uh, they informed Hamor and uh, Shechem that they would consent to the marriage of Dinah and Shechem and the intermarriage further of the two families on the condition that every male in Shechem would be circumcised. And, uh, and all of uh, that uh, now unfolds before us here in the scene be, is because Jacob failed to take charge and lead in the situation. And it was a time for Jacob to stand up and be the dad, to be the patriarch. Uh, to be the head of the family, and his family needed strong leadership at that moment in time, and uh, he didn't provide it. And when a father fails to take charge and to lead a family, you can be sure that the children will be very happy to take over, and that's exactly what happened. And Jacob here, he did nothing in a situation that he ought to have done something uh, significant in. And they then stepped up in all of their youthful anger, and they are about to make things worse. They were not up to the task. And when the proposition was made that the intermarriages would occur on the condition of circumcision, uh, Hamor and Shechem were very happy to comply. And being the king of Shechem, and Hamor being that, and Shechem being uh, the son, being uh, the prince of Shechem, they then convinced the entire male population to be circumcised as well. And then the sons of Jacob, they waited until the third day after the circumcision had been uh, performed citywide within the city, and then they proceeded to kill every male in the city. And uh, in their incapacitated state and unable to adequately defend themselves. And, uh, and uh, at that point, it was Simeon and Levi that went into the city, each of them armed with a sword, and they proceeded to kill every male within the city. You might ask yourself, why in the world was it Simeon and Levi of, uh, of the eleven that were uh, 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 one son not being born yet, eleven of the sons of of, uh, of, of Jacob that would rise up and, and do this. And, uh, and the reason was, was because they were, uh, like Dinah, the children of Leah. And so they then, uh, upon uh, slaughtering everybody within the city, they went to the house of Shechem and removed Dinah. And at that point, all of the remaining brothers then entered into the city now to plunder it. And they looted the corpses of the dead bodies of the men, imagine, uh, lying, uh, slain within the city. And they looted the city as as well of all of its wealth. And they proceeded then to steal all of the flocks, all of the herds, uh, as as well as taking all of the surviving uh, wives and children of the men of Shechem captive, taking them as slaves. And this... Uh, was an unspeakably appalling act of cold-blooded murder on the part of the sons of Jacob and, uh, and the looting. And Shechem had raped their sister. He deserved to be judged. But what they did was even worse in slaughtering and in murdering an entire city of husbands and fathers of sons and brothers who were completely innocent. They had nothing to do with the actions of Shechem and the rape of of Dinah. Nothing to do with the crime. And when Jacob heard about uh, what they had done, he was greatly troubled. And he rebuked Simeon and Levi. And his rebuke is found there in that last chapter in verse 30, of uh, chapter 34. And he said to them, you have troubled me. Uh, by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And since I am few in number, they will gather themselves against me and kill me. I will be destroyed, my household and uh, I. And in that patriarchal society, 
where the father dominated the family unit, dominated society, for these sons to have taken this action independent of their father's, uh, not only of his approval, but even of his uh, knowledge was a shocking uh, violation uh, against him. But again, here in the absence of any leadership on the part of, uh, of Jacob and given his apparent willingness uh, to somehow overlook what had happened and, and uh, allow the intermarrying of, of these uh, families, uh, they had taken now over the control of the family. Jacob's rebuke there in chapter 34, <clears throat> excuse me, verse 30, excuse me, and his rebuke there is noticeably weak in that he doesn't rebuke them uh, for their murders. He doesn't rebuke them for their savagery, for their uh, looting, the slaughtering of so many innocent people. He doesn't rebuke them for what they've done to God's reputation, or his only concern is that their actions have now put the families. Uh, safety in jeopardy. And their reply is there in verse 31 of chapter 34, but they said, should, we, uh, should he treat our sister like a harlot? And they completely dismissed the rebuke of their father, again revealing that Jacob has now completely lost control of his family. His family is spinning totally out of control. And again, in all of this, Jacob is not innocent at all. In fact, it is his guilt that lies at the core uh, of all of the horrors that occurred there in chapter 34 that is included in that, that word then. Uh, there is his inaction in the face of the rape of his daughter. And his inaction in the face of the rape of his daughter is simply appalling. There is his willingness for his family to intermarry with the sons and the daughters of Shechem, putting the very bloodline of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in jeopardy. The bloodline that God had promised to bring uh, the Messiah, the Savior, into uh, the world. And he was willing in, in silence to put that in jeopardy with this plan to intermarry with the people of Shechem. And and his, his passivity here is, is shocking beyond words. And clearly from his call to his family and his servants, as we see in chapter 15, uh, 35, uh, his call to his family and servants to put away their idols, uh, it is clear that he has been aware of significant idolatry being practiced within his family. And he has long turned uh, a blind eye to all of it. And the big thing that had to be weighing on Jacob now uh, at the moment of the ending of the events in chapter 34 was the fact that he and his family should have never settled anywhere close to the city of Shechem. Because when God called Jacob to leave his father-in-law Laban in uh, Padanaram, uh, he clearly told Jacob that he was to return to the land of his fathers, to the land of, the Ca of, Ca of Canaan. But he also declared that he was to return to his family. In Genesis chapter 31, verse 3, the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your family, and I will be well with you. And the fact that Jacob was fully aware that God had declared him to, uh, had commanded him to do the two things, not only to return to the land of Canaan, but to return to that section of the land of Canaan that was uh, being uh, uh, indwelt by, uh, by his family. The fact that he was, that was clear to him uh, is made clear to us and that he repeated it in his prayer to the Lord on the day uh, before, uh, that he wrestled with the Lord uh, 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 by the brook Jabbok on the night before he uh, met his uh, brother Esau 
uh, face to face. And there in Genesis chapter 32, verse 9, Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your family, and I will deal dwell with uh, I will uh, deal well with you and his father Isaac was at the time that Jacob entered into uh, the land of Canaan in uh, obedience to the command that God had given to him at that time now seven to ten years earlier his father was dwelling in the city of Beersheba a uh, hundred and twenty miles south of uh, Shechem, and uh, Jacob uh, failed to go down into that city of Beersheba to be with his family. God wanted him to return to his family there, uh, to be around those who also worship the Lord as their God. And and uh, in this land that was filled with wickedness at the time, this would be a relatively safe place for Jacob and his family uh, to uh, be spiritually and physically speaking. And instead, he thought he was smarter than God, and he disregarded God's commandment, and he puts his family in a danger in settling next to Shechem that God knew they were clearly not ready for. And so here you have the encapsulation of that opening word of chapter 35, the encapsulation of that word then, and uh, of Jacob's world at that very moment. His daughter had been raped. Uh, Simeon and Levi had uh, become cold-blooded mass murderers. The rest of his sons, cold-blooded looters and pillagers, his camp is filled with idols that he's turned a blind eye to for a very long time. His children are uh, living in, now in open rebellion to his authority. And because of the actions of his son, they are now in danger of being slaughtered by the neighboring Canaanites and Perizzites as they had completely wiped out uh, the city of Shechem. And these Canaanites and Perizzites greatly outnumbered uh, Jacob and his clan and the, the uh, entourage and family that was traveling uh, with him. And uh, they would have been content and were fully content to dwell and allow Jacob to dwell in the area of Shechem as long as he was peaceful. But here they've shown themselves to be uh, butchers of the inhabitants of Shechem. And again, uh, God promises to bless, uh, all of his promises to bless the entire world through a Messiah uh, born of Jacob's bloodline is very much at risk of being wiped out now by the Canaanites and by the Perizzites as a retribution for the actions of Jacob's sons. And Jacob was fully aware of all of this. This is an intelligent man. This is a thoughtful man, and he realizes that this is his world at the moment. And Jacob, living with the realization that all of this had occurred as a result of his own disobedience, that he was in a very real sense that he was responsible for all of this, that if he had simply obeyed God in his life, he and his family wouldn't have been within 120 miles of Shechem. And when we come to that then, in chapter 35, Jacob's life was an absolute, unimaginable, indescribable catastrophe. It is a mess from any angle that you want to uh, look at it from. And just stop and put yourself in his place uh, for a moment. And all of these things, rape and murder and, and rebellion and idolatry, they're not just words on a page. Any one of these things would rock a family. Any one of these things alone would rock a parent's life, a father's life, much less all of them clustering in, 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 in the way that, that they did here. And, uh, 
And maybe you are not exactly in his place to that full degree, but you find yourself this morning uh, to some degree or another in his place. And of course, what would be the great question anyone would be thinking uh, in the midst of all of that? Well, the great question that would arise in Jacob's mind and would arise in any of our minds in that kind of a circumstance is, what in the world do I do now? And that is the question that God answers in chapter 35, verse 1. When following that then, the Lord tells Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there. In other words, Jacob, go back to Bethel. And I think it's important to remember what Bethel represented to Jacob. It was the place where Jacob first met God, uh, 30 years old uh, earlier when he was fleeing uh, toward Padanaram and toward his uncle Laban, fleeing the wrath and the vengeance of, of Esau. And it was the place where he had his first personal encounter with God. It was the place where that is often spoken of in, uh, as the site of Jacob's conversion. And where he saw that vision of a ladder reaching up into heaven from the earth and angels ascending and descending from the ladder and God standing in heaven at the top uh, of the ladder and where God revealed himself to Jacob. And Bethel uh, was the place where Jacob committed his life to the Lord as it's recorded there in chapter 28. And so this God... Uh, call, uh, here he is, God calling him uh, to come back to the place where Jacob first met God. Go back to the place where you first committed your life to me. Come back to being as close to me and as committed to me as you were at the very beginning. Come back to the place when uh, I was all that you had and all that you needed, and all that you wanted in life, and come back to the place when our relationship was what you uh, wanted it to be, and come back to that relationship now. And it wasn't a call uh, to return here as God makes it to Jacob, uh, to return to some particular geographical location supremely, it was a call to return to a relationship with God that Jacob once had, but he no longer possessed. It was a time to draw near to God in the way that so often we draw near to God, in that innocence, that purity, that full-heartedness of when we're first saved and we first come to know God. And what it speaks to us as God's children is that when everything in our lives are, is falling apart, and especially when it's falling apart because of some failure in our lives, uh, in our own lives, to walk obediently uh, with the Lord, and uh, falling apart is always going to be the result of that decision. And when we find ourselves in the mess, the catastrophe, we find our life falling in on top of us, and we wonder, I have made such a mess of my life. What in the world can I do now? And the solution is to go back to Bethel. Go back to the relationship that you had or I had with God at the beginning of our Christian life. When things were simple, they were pure. When they were peaceful and joy-filled. And to simply hear a commandment from God uh, was to obey it instantly and enjoy the blessing of all of that. And if we confess our sin and we confess our self-will to God and we repent, then we will find that the relationship that we once had with God is sitting right where we left it, and we will discover if we return to it, God's grace and His blessings once again. And of course, as we listen to this, we can't help but be reminded of the comment or the instruction that Jesus gave to the church of Ephesus 
in the first of those seven letters of Jesus to the seven churches in the Revelation. And uh, Jesus declared to the church in Ephesus, Revelation chapter 2, verse 4, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Uh, remember, uh, the, they've left that going together love. They've left that espousal love. They left the, the relationship, that they, the innocence of it, the purity of it, the instant obedience of it, uh, the beauty uh, of it uh, uh, that, that marked it when they were first saved. And Jesus said, remember therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. And he called on that church in Ephesus to remember when our relationship, uh, their relationship and our relationship was uh, what we want, uh, loved it to be and what we now long for it to be uh, in, in uh, having uh, left it. And then the second great charge is to repent, to have a change of mind about our direction in life, to have a change in mind about the quality of the relationship that I have with God, and, and uh, to recommit my life to the Lord. And then he said, Jesus did, go and do your first works. In other words, he's saying the same thing, go back to Bethel, go back to doing all of the things that you did, when your relationship with God was going great and throw off all of the other things that have now attached to your life over the last however many years it might be and uh, all of the things that have come into our life to now crowd out the innocence and the simplicity and the beauty uh, of that early relationship with Christ and, uh, and, and the call then to remember the place uh, that prayer had in our lives, the place that Bible reading and Bible study had in our lives, Christian fellowship had in our lives, worship music had in our lives, evangelism, Christian service, uh, the Holy Spirit, the place that He had in our lives, and then to return uh, to all of it. And then when we do, we will find that that relationship with God uh, right where we left it. And it's very, very important to realize that Jesus did not tell the Christians in Ephesus that they had lost their first love. Uh, he hadn't told them that at all. When we lose something, then we can wonder. Uh, it, it puts into doubt whether we will ever be able to find it again by virtue of the fact that it's lost. But Jesus never told them that they had lost uh, their first love. He told them that they had left their first love. And when we leave something, we know right where we left it, and we know where to return to in order to find it. And it's waiting there for us. Jacob's obedience is uh, detailed for us here in verses 2 through 4. Jacob commanded his household to then purify themselves, they were to rid themselves of everything that was unholy, and they were to arise and go with him uh, to Bethel. And instantly, and it can happen in an instant as I uh, speak to us as, as fathers and as, as dads and heads of a household uh, uh, today, instantly he retook uh, his position as the spiritual leader and the spiritual authority within uh, his home. And he then issued this call to holiness in verse 2. He called on his family and his servants to put away their foreign gods. Everything that they loved more than God, everything that they uh, worshipped to a greater degree uh, than God. And that can be a person, that can be a place, that can be a thing, it can be a sin, it can be a philosophy, it can be a position in life, it can be wealth, it can be pleasure, it can be entertainment. And it was a call then to uh, leave behind, to put away anything that they were now aware of, uh, that they were practicing in violation of the standard of God's Word. And here is Jacob now uh, being done uh, finished 
with turning a blind eye to the idolatry uh, of his uh, family, of overlooking it. And overlooking it is so often is the case in our lives as fathers, where he didn't want to fight with them over the music they were listening to, over the television shows they were watching, over the websites that they were visiting, over the video games that they were playing, over the movies that uh, they were watching, turning a blind eye to their rebellion and how they dressed and the company that they kept and their disrespect that they showed to authority, even his authority. And I think that all of us who've raised, raised children, we know something about this battle. And we know uh, something about how easy it, it, it is to just quit in the battle of keeping our families well-directed and to just say this is not worth the aggravation and, uh, the, and, uh, and to uh, t- begin to turn a blind eye to things within our household that we uh, at one time would have never turned a blind eye uh, to. And I think one of the hardest things that anyone will ever do, and you might try to convince me of something else, but I don't, uh, it'll take some convincing. But I think that one of the hardest things, if not the hardest thing, that a person will, uh, any Christian will ever do in Western culture is to raise a child in the midst of it, to raise a child in the, in the midst of the kind of temptations that are put before us in our family all day, every day, uh, the innumerable vehicles in which they, uh, they uh, ride in order to enter into our lives, and to raise a child in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord as a Christian in Western culture is to not only raise the child in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, but to do it against the entire flow uh, of the culture. And, the, and the, the, the desire to do so, the effort to do so, would be completely lost uh, unless God came alongside what we did and made of our attempts to raise our children in His ways, uh, powerful and effectual in their lives, however much we may or may not see it uh, outwardly. And here uh, is, I, I, I remember when here Jacob, he talks about the fact, that, and he uh, speaks to his family about God, that he's obeying God in going back to Bethel. He is obeying God and taking the family uh, back to Bethel. And uh, he is now letting his family know that he is a man under authority, that, uh, that, he, that God is the one that is making the decision and the decisions of God and the standard of God is being reestablished back into the family. And he puts himself as a man under authority of God. He tells them to his, his family and his children, I am requiring this of you because God requires it of me. And I remember more than once as Karen and I raised our daughters in those years that uh, uh, were an ebb and flow in terms of uh, being very, very hard in, in uh, raising them in the things of the Lord and the rebellion and the rebellion that is nurtured by the culture and, and all. And telling the kids that so often they thought they were under some uh, extraordinary standard because I was a pastor and letting them know that I would have done, made the same decisions if I wasn't a pastor and simply a Christian but trying to explain to them that one day, as their father, uh, that I would stand before God and give an account for how I raised them in an effort to help them understand that I was a man under authority in in all uh, of this, and then in raising them in this way and making these standards the standards of our home. And like Jacob, sometimes as we find himself, him in this place, sometimes as he's just surrounded by catastrophe, he's surrounded by his whole world caving in uh, on him. 
and how often it can be sometimes that it takes a great catastrophe and uh, everything is going sideways uh, to uh, produce and introduce a fear within our lives. The recognition that I will not, this family will not survive the depth and the demands of this circumstance unless we know that we are right with God. We must know that He is with us. We must know that He is for us. We must know uh, that we will have His blessing and His leading uh, in this. And so often it takes some great catastrophe like that that then causes us to, to look and say, we are returning to God, uh, and, and we are uh, going to rise up now and do the right thing, because only God can solve the situation that we find ourselves in now. And here is Jacob, he called upon them to purify themselves of all of their sin, all of their rebellion against God, and he told them to change their garments. We're not going to wear the blood-stained clothes that, uh, that bear the blood of innocent blood of the men of Shechem uh, into the presence of the Lord. And uh, we're going to wear clean clothes. And all of it is an expression of uh, being done now with their former life and being done with not only their former life of months before or years before, but what had even happened just days uh, before. And here is this desire now to begin something entirely new uh, with God. And to the credit of these children, they obeyed Him, as we're told in verse 4, and thus Jacob then buried their foreign gods their earrings, and these earrings were earrings that were uh, uh, ornaments that were uh, worn and were a part of the worship of foreign gods, and the earrings that were associated with the worship of these foreign gods, all of them were buried under the terebinth tree, which was by Shechem, as they made their way now uh, to Bethel. And uh, when Jacob buries these things, uh, the idea is they're dead to us now. Uh, we only bury dead things, and, uh, and so this bearing speaks of death. And here is Jacob making this a reference point in their lives. That is, all of that is over. It's dead to us. We will never return to these things. And then the most amazing thing happens in the entire passage with Jacob's obedience, there in verse 5, God rose up and he protected them in the face of the threat of the Perizzites and the Canaanites. He protected this entire family as they made their journey uh, to Bethel. And he put a supernatural fear into these uh, great clans, these great tribes that were intent upon the destruction, the uh, utter wiping out uh, of the bloodline of Jacob as they had done to so many in Shechem. And God put a fear, a supernatural fear, into those peoples and, uh, who had a great cause for revenge and the ability to utterly destroy, uh, destroy Jacob and his, his family. And again, God, as He will do many times in the Old Testament, in His grace, He rose up to protect the bloodline through which he was going to bring the Savior. He was going to bring Jesus into human history that you and I might be saved here this morning. And at Bethel, as we're told in verses 9 through 15, God appeared to Jacob once again. And there in those verses, the Lord, and really it is a marvel of marvels, he reaffirmed the name change to Jacob, of his name being changed from Jacob, heel catcher, uh, deceiver to Israel, being governed by God. He reaffirmed his promises uh, to Jacob in verses 11 and 12, and then having done so, he departed in verse 13. And Jacob's response was he set up another pillar where 
uh, God talked with him here at Bethel. And he set up a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering and oil uh, upon it. In ancient days, uh, one would build a pillar uh, in order to mark or to serve as a reminder of some significant event. And Jacob never wanted to forget what it is that happened there. And here we have in these verses, verse 5 and verses 9 to 15, which is the uh, final word concerning that opening word then within the chapter. And we have in these verses one of the most astonishing revelations of the grace of God in all of the Bible. And this passage contains a very strong exhortation to any of us who have come under the influence of our own self-will or the influence of rebellion or carnality or uh, disobedience to God, and we have chosen like Jacob did to stop short uh, of where God intends us to be in life, to stop short in Shechem when God wants us in Beersheba, and uh, when God has called us to go uh, to that place but, and to be with our family. But the great marvel of the passage, the exhortation is important, but the marvel of the passage is that if we will repent and do so, that we will discover God's forgiveness and His grace and His restoration and His blessing awaiting us there in Bethel going back to the relationship with Christ that we once had at the very beginning. And if Jacob could go back to Bethel and discover God's forgiveness in the way that he did, God's grace in the way that he did, a fresh start after the indescribable mess that he was in, then how much more can we as Christians return to God in the same kind of circumstances and with an even greater confidence in the forgiveness and the grace of God founded upon the blood and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This was a very pivotal chapter in Jacob's life. And for the rest of his life, as it's recorded in the book of Genesis, he will never quite be perfect. Uh, no one is. But he would never be the same man that he was before his return to Bethel. And in the biblical account that follows, he will be increasingly referred to, no longer as Jacob, but referred to as Israel. And here for the rest of his life, as you would uh, read it, as you continue through the book of Genesis, he now possesses a sobriety concerning uh, God and the things of God that we've never seen before in his life. And God desires to do the same thing in our lives as well as needed. The Bible teaches that where sin abounds, where sin even abounds, grace abounds much more. And so this incredible encapsulation of Jacob's life and that single word, then. And you would think there would be no hope for circumstances like that. And yet with his repentance and with his confession of sin and his return to Bethel, his return to that simple, pure, joyous, unquestioning, obedient walk with God that we knew at the beginning of our Christian life. God had all of this grace and restoration and blessing awaiting Him. And so He does as it relates to our lives too. And I offer this message of hope this morning not to the person who would use God's grace to play games with sin 
or to play games with God, to just get out of a pinch for the moment and go back to uh, all of the nonsense and the disobedience of, of earlier days. But to speak this message of hope this morning to the person who is wondering in the middle of the mess that your decisions have made of your life, of decisions that you know are your responsibility and were decisions that are very far from what God called you to do and from what God called you uh, to be. And presently, your whole world that has been built upon compromise is crashing in on top of you. And for you to realize, go back to Bethel. And when you go back to Bethel, you will find God waiting for you there with His grace and with His blessings. And how wonderful it is to realize in the Christian life that it is never too late to do the right thing. And God always notices when we commit to doing the right thing. Let's pray now. Father, we thank You for this great truth of back to Bethel. And I pray that by Your Holy Spirit and through this passage, You would forever plant within our hearts as Your children those simple words go back to Bethel anytime we find ourselves in the middle of a mess that is because we have fallen short of going the full distance of what you've called us to do and to be and as the consequences would come in upon us to realize that the answer to such a circumstance is to go back to Bethel to come back to you in innocence, in purity, in wholeheartedness. And we thank you, Lord, that there is a greater than Bethel in our lives as Christians, the cross of Jesus Christ. And we thank you that is in that place that there is always the grace that we will find in the course of our pilgrimage, no matter how messy uh, we make it or how messy it gets. We thank you this morning for your grace and your mercy, astonishing your blessing in Jacob's life. It is really jaw-dropping as we see it, Lord, what you chose to overwhelm in his life with his repentance and his return to Bethel. And Lord, we thank you as we consider the greatness of your grace and your mercy and your blessings in our lives as well. We commit this passage, the truth of this passage, to the work of your Holy Spirit within our lives today and that you would give it an eternal place in our spirit that you might bring it to our remembrance as needed in the remainder of our pilgrimage. We ask for this, Lord, and, and pray for it is a work of your Holy Spirit, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.